Today's scripture reading is John 12, 35 to 43. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. God, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Andrew. I'm actually the campus pastor at the Leewood campus of Christ Community. Uh, But today, I get to be with you guys, and I bring greetings from uh, your brothers and sisters in Leewood. So it's a real pleasure to be with you this morning. Uh, I know some of you because I've been around that long, but I don't know most of you. So I'll share a little bit about me. Uh, I used to be a big movie guy. I don't watch them anymore because uh, I've reached the point in my financial journey where I'm, I'm only willing to pay for Disney+. Plus. So that's, that's where I get my entertainment uh, with my family and my, my kiddos. Uh, my kids are about uh, 11 and 9 right now. Uh, and uh, they're not quite old enough for this, but I can, from where I stand, I can see the movie marathon that I want to have with them to share all the movies I loved growing up sit down with them, and they're not quite old enough for that yet, but I'm almost there, and one of the movies I really want to show them, one of my favorites growing up, was the movie E.T. Now, this movie's a little dated, came out in 1982, so depending on uh, your age, you maybe haven't seen this one, but uh, it's, you know, we're we're past the spoilers problem with this movie, so it's about a friendly alien uh, who shows up in a suburban home. Uh, in California, and there are lots of iconic moments in this movie, uh, and, and iconic lines as well, one of them being uh, E.T. Phone Home, you've heard that one before. Uh, one of the most famous scenes, though, in this movie is uh, what I want to point out here together. So Elliot is the main character, he's the, the boy who discovers the alien in his home, and he realizes that at first this, this alien's hiding in like his backyard shed, and he's trying to lure it out to bring it into his house. Now, do you remember how he does it? Reese's Pieces. See, everybody knows it's Reese's Pieces. It's one of the first things you think about with this movie. So Elliot leaves a trail of Reese's Pieces 
that E.T. follows and they become a theme throughout the movie because E.T. loves them so much. What perhaps you didn't know about this movie is that Steven Spielberg, who wrote and directed E.T., went first to the Mars Candy Company and asked about using M&Ms in this scene. And some big shot at Mars decided, you know what, we don't want an alien associated with our brand, with our M&M brand. And they read the script, and they didn't like the script, and they were convinced the movie would bomb, so they turned them down. Reese's, which was owned by Hershey, was next, and, and they jumped at the chance. The, the rumor is that Spielberg couldn't even get through his pitch before they said, yes, we will absolutely allow you to use our product in your movie. Of course, E.T. went on to become the highest grossing film at the time, worldwide, even beat Star Wars, which had come out just a few years before. And if you adjust for inflation, it is still a top 10 global movie. Reese's, which was not a very strong brand before this movie, became a global hit overnight. One article I read estimated that sales for Hershey jumped 60 to 80% the following year. And someone back at Mars said, oops. <laughs> it was a multi-million dollar mistake to say no to E.T. I mean, think, can you imagine... Can you imagine being on the team or being the executive in the marketing department or whatever that said no to Steven Spielberg's face? Can you imagine being that person? And then waking up uh, after opening weekend for the movie and you open the newspaper, because that's what they did in 1982, (laughs) and seeing the headline that says, like, best movie ever, question mark, and wondering, man, it's time to... Work on my resume this week, I think. And if those people who made that decision, if they think anything like I do, one of the fleeting thoughts I would have had on my morning commute that Monday as I contemplated my future, I would have said, I wish someone had warned me. I wish somebody could grab my lapels back in that moment and slap my face and say, do not say no to this. This will never come back. Say yes to this opportunity. Do it. We've been in the Gospel of John as a church these last few weeks in the new year. And John tells us, just to remind us, John tells us about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's an ancient biography of the most influential and important person who has ever lived. And John wrote this gospel not because he simply found it interesting as a story, but because he believed that trusting Jesus, that this uh, Jesus offer to follow him in all that we do and to rely on him for life itself was the most important offer of all time. And that to miss out on that offer would be the most catastrophic, tragic, but avoidable mistakes that any human person could make in this life. And this passage that we, we just heard read, it is the warning. It's the thing we wish we had after we make the mistake, but we have it now. This is in John's gospel, by the way, it's the last public proclamation Jesus will make. It's this passage right here. Last Sunday, we skipped to this section 
and talk to the, about the upper room uh, with Jesus and the disciples, and he washes their feet. But this week, we're jumping back to this passage, because from chapter 13 on, Jesus is only speaking to his disciples in private, or he is on his way to the cross. So this is it, last chance. And fair warning, it does not go very well. It does not go well for the people in this passage. Almost everyone turns Jesus down at this moment, but John does not want us to do the same thing. John's begging us, don't say no to Jesus. Do not say no to him. Even though we will be tempted to, like the crowds in our passage and the religious leaders here, we will be tempted to say no, but we must not. We should not. Because John is going to show us ahead of time the reasons we might say no. So if you have your Bible with you, uh, turn to the book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the fourth book in, in your New Testament. Turn to John chapter 12. We're starting here in verse 36. And as I said before, this is Jesus' last public address. And it serves as a warning. And John does not pull punches here. So listen to how this starts. This is the second half of verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Now, after everything we've been through with Jesus, from chapter 1 to now, we've been in the book of John as a church family, kind of off and on for the last year or so. So imagine that we've been reading this story straight through. This is John's summary statement of how, quote-unquote, popular Jesus' ministry has been. This is it. I mean, think about that. After all the teaching Jesus has done, the signs that he's performed, and we're going to get back to that in a second, the vast majority of Jesus' contemporaries, they do not believe in him. And this passage warns us as to why. So I'm, I'm going to jump around here a bit. But the first reason we see together, we might be tempted to say no to Jesus, like these people did, is actually down in verse 44. Let me read that quickly. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now, this is a reminder to us uh, that's all throughout the Gospel of John, that when, when Jesus really starts talking about himself, when he really starts sharing out loud who he thinks he is, people get very, very upset with him. Remember with me to his Jewish listeners, there was no more offensive or evil thing you could do than to make yourself equal with God. To do so was to incur death on yourself. It was a cursed life to do that. So here comes Jesus talking about himself, and he starts this way, right? He says, whoever believes in me believes in the one who sent me, meaning God. Believe in me, you believe in God. And, and maybe you, you hear that and it's like, okay, a prophet might say something like that. We can get on board with that. And then he says, I'm the light of the world. And you go, okay, you as a prophet have unique things to say. You shed light on the truth. We get the metaphor, Jesus. We can get on board with that. And then he says, here, if you see me, you have seen God. That's verse 45. And this is where people begin to say, Jesus, no. Jesus, that's, that's too much. That's too far. 
And it's hard to blame them. Even the most important religious figures in the world, Muhammad, Moses, Siddhartha, Confucius, they, to various degrees, they, they claim to speak the truth. They, they claim knowledge of the divine or the ultimate. They, they, they claim to have access or knowledge of, of certain things that other people don't have, but none of them, not one of them, ever said, if you want to see God, look at me, except for Jesus. He's the only one. Jesus' claim to divinity is one of the most divisive things about him. And John's warning us here, don't say no to Jesus, even though his claims are offensive. Offensive is the right word, I think. They offend. They they put us off. They don't make sense at first blush. They challenge us to our very core, and they hit us like icy water to the face. And this is very important. This is very important. If Jesus claimed about himself, that he's God in the flesh, if that does not shock you, if it has never shocked you, even if you believe in Jesus, you probably have not thought hard enough about it. I was recently watching a a brilliant Christian apologist. He's a a defender of the Christian faith. And uh, he's actually with the Lord now. He, He died fairly young. His name was Nabil Qureshi, and he converted from Islam And he spent uh, his uh, short life uh, sharing Jesus with other Muslims. It was a world he understood. And he was having a Q&A that was recorded. And he was in a room full of of many uh, Muslims. And of course, one of the first questions he got in that Q&A was this. How can we take Jesus seriously when he claims to be Allah? When he claims to be God? That's blasphemy. That's evil. Now, I'm not going to share Qureshi's response to that because it only would be helpful if you have a Muslim background, which most of you probably don't. But that kind of offense, right? That that should tell us something about Jesus' claim. This should give us a window into what Jesus' original audience, his hearers, would have heard when they heard Jesus teach. It's offensive to us that Jesus would claim that identity and that authority over everybody, regardless of what you think of him. He will say later in verse 48 that his word will judge us. Jesus says, my word is the last word over you. Whether you acknowledge me or not, that's offensive. And it's meant to be offensive because the offense pushes us beyond the shallow approach with which most of us come to Jesus in the first place. Most of us we're being honest, when we evaluate Jesus, probably the first thing we wonder is, do I like this guy? Do I resonate with him? Do I like listening? Do I like what he says? And this is where we hear things like, yes, I, I like this thing about Jesus, but, but I don't agree with that part of, of what he said, or Jesus is a great moral example to us to love each other. He's a great teacher. We have a lot to learn from Jesus. Now, Jesus is way too offensive Do ever say that about him. He won't let you get away with that. What we like or do not like about Jesus is nowhere near the most important thing to him about you. That is not his question for you. In fact, there are things Jesus will say 
that will make you not like him. At least at first. The question is not, do we like Jesus? But is Jesus right? Is he right? Is he correct in his summary of the world and our condition and who he is and the solution to that problem? In other words, we have to take the offense seriously because Jesus meant it. But we must also not say no to him. This is John's point. Even though his claims are offensive, we must not say no to him because Jesus shows us signs to prove he is who he says he is. He shows signs. In fact, the whole first half of John uh, is called the book of signs by people who study this book. It's organized around uh, signs, seven signs actually. And these are Jesus' proof that he is who he says he is and that we shouldn't say no to him. And John actually organizes the whole ministry of Jesus around these seven signs. They are Jesus' proof and they're, they're therefore John's proof of who Jesus claims to be. The problem is that even the signs become another reason we may be tempted to say no to Jesus. And John names this this right off the bat. This is, this is the profound irony of this whole gospel. Verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So John doesn't want us to make the same mistake here, even though he acknowledges here that Jesus' signs are confounding. His signs are confounding. Now, I thought long and hard about that word confounding, because it's not one we use very much, at least in our everyday speech, and it's always a goal when we communicate to be relatable and understandable, Uh, but I could not think of a better word than this. Confounding means to surprise someone by failing to meet their expectation. That's to be confounded. It's, It's more than confusion. It's actually frustration. It borders on disappointment. And Jesus signs his his proofs are confounding to the people around him. And if you don't believe me, let me run through them really quickly with you. First, in John chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine. It's pretty cool. But remember with me, Jesus doesn't just turn any water into wine. He turns uh, the Jewish ritual cleansing water into wine. The water that you would use before you entered a home to, to clean yourself spiritually as a symbol. He turns that water into wine. He, he takes a religious symbol of purity in a zealous culture and turns it into alcohol for a party. Now, I don't know if you know any religious people, but stuff like that can make them really mad. Next, he goes to the temple at Passover. This is like Christmas, okay? This is the biggest holiday of the year. He goes to temple at Passover. He makes a whip and he drives out the money changers and he, he turns over tables and he pours out coins to prove that he is God. That's confounding. He then heals a Roman official's son, an oppressor's son. He heals a paralyzed man, but on the Sabbath day, causes a huge stir. He feeds 5,000 people. Wow. And then he says, if you thought that was good, eat my flesh. He heals a man born blind, again, on the Sabbath. 
And he says, this guy's not near as blind as you are. That's his point. Then he raised Lazarus from the dead, in part to show that he too needed to die in order to be the Jewish Messiah, which absolutely nobody wanted to hear. And there you have it. Amazing signs that had the effect of ultimately getting Jesus killed. They're so confounding. They're so frustrating. So disappointing. This is why John then quotes the prophet Isaiah back in our passage here in in, in chapter 12 and notes that God himself predicted that Jesus would be rejected for this very reason. Now, there's some debate about this passage and how John's using it. Did God cause his people to reject Jesus? Did he simply give them over to their disbelief after rejecting Jesus again and again and again? There's a mystery here in the interplay between God's sovereignty and his knowledge and human responsibility that I cannot possibly resolve now and probably ever. But overall, I think John wants to point out through Isaiah the prophet that the very people who should know God the best are often the most confounded by him and that this has always been the case. And Jesus here, he's no exception. His own people rejected him because he confounded them. And we're still tempted to be confounded by him. Jesus simply refuses to fit into any box we make for him. He will not split the world into good guys and bad guys like we want him to. He doesn't vote Democrat or Republican. He will not condone our hedonism, our pleasure-seeking, or our religiosity and our legalism. He defies our logic and expectation. He gives grace to people when we want judgment. He says endure when we want relief. He says trust when we don't understand. He says follow when we want to run. And he calls us to die every day when all all we want to do is live freely for ourselves. Jesus is offensive in his claims. He's confounding at every step. And he refuses to let us get our hands on him. And on top of all that, his call is absolute. Is absolute. Now, we talked a lot about this a few weeks ago, that Jesus' call is a call to die to self. And if you missed that sermon, it's a really important one. Make sure you catch that. But the principle is illustrated here. Okay, look at verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. See, here John's pointing out that belief in Jesus is more than just intellectual agreement with Jesus. These leaders believed intellectually in Jesus, but were unwilling to show their faith in public. This is not the belief that Jesus is ultimately after from his followers. He's not content with that. His call is higher than that. In fact, it requires a radical obedience and allegiance to Jesus that costs us everything. To follow him is to love him above all worldly comfort and human identity and to risk losing them. For these people in John 12, that cost was very tangible. John pointed it out. He says they're afraid that they will be thrown out of synagogue which if you're not familiar, synagogue was the the place of weekly or even daily worship in Jewish life, in Jewish community, outside of the temple. To be thrown out of synagogue at this time was like a social death sentence. 
It was a symbol of God's rejection of you, of the community's rejection of you. It would likely lead to the loss of your family because they wouldn't be able to bear the shame, uh, to lose your friends and your business and your reputation and your honor. We are so individualistic culturally that we, we hardly have an equivalent to this. But make no mistake, Jesus' call is absolute. So if you stuck with me so far, you may be wondering, well, Andrew, why wouldn't we say no to Jesus? <laughs> if the sales pitch is that Jesus is really offensive and confusing to the point of frustration, and in spite of all that, he demands ultimate and final allegiance from us, why does anyone say yes to him? And I'll go further. Why have millions and millions of people said yes to him? Why did even some of the religious leaders here, who Jesus confronted again and again, why did some of them say yes to him eventually? And we actually meet some of them in, in, in John chapter 12, or chapter 20. Why across every language and culture and politics and gender for thousands and thousands of years have people given their allegiance to him even to the point of death? And it's actually right here. It's in these verses, if we have eyes to see. So Jesus, first off, notice with me, he doesn't just preach a sermon as his last public statement. He cries out. Did you see that in verse 44? He cried out. In his final appeal to a group of people who hated him, and some of whom would have a hand in killing him, he cries out to them. Now this word, cry out, in Greek, it can simply mean to say something loud, like it does in English, but also it can mean to cry out in pain or anguish or emotion. It's used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe crying out in the pain of labor or in the fear of death or in a desperate prayer. So it's hard to know for sure, but my sense is given the gravity of this moment, and that Jesus will no longer be physically present and available to most of these people. Jesus is crying out in agony here. He's in pain here. Because even these people who cannot get past the offense and the disappointment and the demands of Jesus, who have rejected him again and again and again, even these people are people Jesus loves. He loves them. He does not want them to say no to him. And where we would probably be furious with these people and be glad to be rid of them, after three years of arguing and badgering and harassing Jesus at every turn, Jesus is heartbroken that they do not believe in him. Still. And Jesus drives home the point in verse 47. He says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. When Jesus describes why he came, why is he here? He tells us he did not come to judge. He did not come to condemn or to shame or to shun or to lecture or to argue. He came to save. And he knows that to say no to him is more than just being stubborn. It's more than being obstinate. It's an eternal, permanent decision. It is everything. Notice with me, Jesus has every right 
If he is who he says he is, Jesus has every right to be offended by our lack of trust in him. To be confused and disappointed in us for never living up to his standards. And he has every right to demand even our lives because he's the one who gave them to us in the first place. But he did not come to judge. He did not come here to rub it in your face. He did not arrive and take on flesh and live his life and die on a Roman cross to condemn the world. He came to save the world. He came to show to everyone tempted to say no to him, which we've all done, that he does not say no to you. He does not say no to you. And when you begin to understand that, and that on the cross, Jesus proves that whatever the cost may be for following him, and it's high, his cost to find you was higher, and then some. Then you'll begin to understand how and why this offensive and confounding and demanding Jewish carpenter turned the world upside down 2,000 years ago. And still does. In every tongue, tribe, and nation. And in the hearts and minds of people in this very room. So don't say no to him. Don't, don't say no to him. Even if you're here. And you don't yet know what you think of all of this. That's okay. But don't close yourself to it. Don't walk away from him. Turn to him. Believe in him. Receive life in his name. May that be true of all of us.